2: Come and find yours. I'm in to your transmissions? I'm waiting to
3: be found and i to... This is the Starship Sover. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Show 707. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, we are in another Little Blizzardy this Cool Snap. Just so, I just looked out this morning, they're sewing all tomatoes, all them summer tender, you know, like vegetables, cucumbers, everything like that. And there's a minus three covered in snow. Oh, man. Anyway, who's to worry about that? We've got some fantastic fiction and a great narration as well. It is Wild Plums by Molly Tanzer. Now this story was an original in Phase Change, Imagining Energy Futures two thousand and twelve. So I'll give you a little heads-up about Molly. Molly Tanza is an award-winning author of five novels, two collections and many works of short fiction. She lives outside of Boulder, Colorado, with her notorious cat, the Toad. And you can follow her on Instagram at molly__tanza. Now, the story is narrated by Mary Murphy. Mary is a New York-based actor, voiceover artist. She loves the world of audio drama and is delighted to be back on board Starship Sova. She has performed in the theatre, film, TV, animation, radio and video games. A few of her most recent include credits include The One Woman Play, An Evening with Lola Montez, It's a Wonderful Life, a stream performance of the piece Nia Nellie Blythe, she can be heard voicing various characters for Disney, Go Kid Go, Leapfrog, the Centre for New American Media, Audible and AudioMance. She has also been a regular performer on the audio drama series Fireside Mystery Theatre, the No Sleep Podcast, the Wicked Library, To the Manor Born by Robots and Campfire Radio Theatre. You can find her at marymurphyonline.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present...
0: The ancient Prunus genus once boasted over 400 different species, such as the peach, the apricot, and the plum, domesticated and wild. While its cousins, P. salensina and P. domestica, have thrived in some of the North American controlled environments, the wild plum, like the nectarine and the almond, is now presumed extinct. At one time, however, it was a prized resource in the Americas, Thickets of wild plums were managed for food and sometimes religious purposes by indigenous Americans. The shrubs were especially valuable when planted by rivers, as their roots stabilized the banks. Deer, possum, even bears fed on wild plums, decreasing numbers of these codependent seed dispersers during urban overdevelopment of the 20th century and the mass extinction events of the 21st contributed to their overall decline. Beset by invasives, ill-served by rising global temperatures, their dwindling numbers were further reduced by the rapid spread of a parasite that affected the tree at the root. By the time the United States was dissolving to form nace with Mexico and Canada, the once abundant wild plum had become nearly impossible to find. When ripe, wild plums ranged in color from peach plush yellow to dark purple maturing in the late summer or early autumn they were unpredictable unlike our hybrids that thrive on routine in sphere two really wild things of any sort don't stand much of a chance everything must submit to the cycle the solar-powered habitat and replacement environment is so precisely managed that every year between August 23rd and August 26th, the crickets start to chirp. They know as well as we do that we will start to feel autumn in the air on September 5th, just a bit before I, personally, prefer to give up on summer. By the equinox, we're all in sweaters. The apples have been turned into cider, and the leaves on the trees are red and gold. It is the same every year and is likely to remain so, at least in Sphere 2, where Colorado used to be, and before and after Colorado, the Arapaho. The year of the meteor strike, so chaotic in other ways, only cemented the practice. When the skies darkened and our solar-dependent environment faced its first major threat, everyone gave up their power allotments for the good of the community, We all knew the consequences of irregularity. Many of us still remember what life was like before the sphere. I was young, but I recall plenty. Too much, maybe. Then, September wasn't autumn, nor did showers come in April like the archaic nursery rhyme. In the sphere, we have May flowers again, so we sat in the dark that year a lot, but the seasons came and went and the trees survived, and we didn't starve. Afterward, everyone, everyone who mattered, agreed that this had only gone to show how right and necessary it was to maintain our level of regulation. If other controlled environments dealt with that year differently, I do not know. I have never been to the other spheres. In the remains of Arizona and California, or the wind run in the ruin of Texas or the hydroelectric-powered habitat in Cascadia, whose name I can never remember. I've never been anywhere, like everyone else I know. Once I entered the sphere, i never gone back out again. Until now, I mean. I pedaled my e-bike westward and a little north, toward the mountains. My touch tablet, sitting in its little handlebar mount, showed me a map. I was following an old road. All roads are old, but this one wasn't even used by resource management, as it didn't lead to anywhere with resources. Fires had claimed the forest of the Front Range, a blaze begun in one of the ever-expanding camps of unhomed persons living outside Boulder during a particularly dry year. An entire city, destroyed by its refusal to see itself. And though it was a fairly perfect prediction of what was to come for the former United States, like all oracles, it went unheeded. As I pedaled, I sweated. It was warmer than it ever got in the sphere, even during high summer, and the ride was rough. The cracks in the ancient, sun-bleached pavement were choked with weeds, and the tires of my e-bike were thin intended for the sphere's springy, moss-felt paths. The shadows grew long as the deep red sun dipped behind the mountains. I pressed on. I could still see clearly by the glow of my slug as it floated and bobbed in its little spherical vivarium beside my touch tablet. I drawn back the shade on its special solar cradle, and I was very comfortable trundling along in the puddle of its Clear, bright blue green light. The slug wasn't just a lantern. It powered my e bike, my respirator, and my touch tablet, too. Its species unique spectrum had been engineered to interact seamlessly with our solar tech. Resource management brought them the year after the meteor strike, along with the mandatory trade allotments of cane and maple sugars, corn, smoked salmon, dried shrimp, coffee, hemp, wheat and so on, that we received from the other controlled environments. We proudly gave over our peach preserves, elk, apple butter and cider, marijuana, wool, and beef, in turn, in the quantities determined by Mace's Central Trading Authority. There was always a festival atmosphere at such times, but that year was a quiet one. The darkness had demoralized us. There were whispers, too, because our representative had come along unusually, we'd known something big must be afoot because she usually stayed in the capital in far-flung restored Powhatan Confederacy lands, communicating with her constituents via hollow conference to save on resources and time. It caused quite a stir when she told us that the final electric truck contained something that we would receive without having to trade anything for it. She assured us that it was all fine. Genetically modified species 81-B, or the slugs, as they were colloquially renamed, had been developed by a team of the best scientists and engineers. She herself had voted for their creation and distribution in the Fair Assembly. GMS 81-B was simply NASA's official answer to the meteor strike, something that befitted us all, and therefore was to be given freely to us all. There were plenty of precedents, for example. Vaccines, other medicines, water, ethical energy. No one could profit off of what was necessary for life. The slugs were, essentially, a self-recharging battery suitable for individual use, or in large numbers to power infrastructure. They were less efficient than actual solar. But the darkening of the skies had showed us all how any ethical energy source, even sunlight, might not remain perpetually abundant. The skies were dimmer now. It might be for some time. We had to adapt ethically. GMS81-B had no real intelligence, even less than that of the sea slugs they vaguely resembled, due to their shared genetic history with some bioluminescent nudibranch species. They fed on algae that lived alongside them. And they could never become an invasive species... As they were designed to live, happily, we were assured, in an artificial environment, one even more controlled than our own. Before it got fully dark, I wheeled my e-bike behind a thicket of scrub brush and located what looked like a reasonably flat patch of ground. There, I unrolled my sleeping bag. I'd done quite a bit of research on how to camp. I wanted to be prepared, and I've always been an avid reader. It was probably my bookishness that allowed all that research to be conducted, without attracting the attention of my reasonably friendly co-workers at Sphere 2's little art museum, or my lover Orin. Orin was more than my lover, actually. He was my partner. We lived together, had adopted a cat named Eddie together, but I still called him that. I don't know why. I've only ever read the word. Nobody called anyone that anymore. Lover, I'd read that too, in old books, typically, though not always. Different ones and those that contained information about correct campsite hygiene. I liked how it evoked the glamorous but barbaric world of previous centuries, and how it revealed that sex was to be explicitly, not implicitly, "'understood as being part of the relationship. "'Which was true of us, "'even after we sorted out our tiresome "'but necessary domestic agreement "'with our sector advocate and moved in together. "'I never thought I'd move in with anybody, "'and too restless, as my mother would put it. "'The orderly life of the sphere was hard for me. "'My mother attributed to it to me being born outside. "'I was around seven when my family "'was finally assigned our apartment.' Would I have been less restless, more able to not just exist, but to thrive within the sphere, if our number had come up earlier? It's a comforting thought, more comforting than what I thought, which is that I was born with something missing. Whatever it is that lets people know how to behave without thinking about it, I don't have that. I can never predict what people will say or do, nor do I know how to respond without calculation. Half of why I like to say things like lover is that it trips other people up, for once. Instead of me being caught off guard, it's them, the shoes on the other foot. And it's easy enough to see how little they like it, either. Restlessness is one thing, leaving another. It's dangerous and pointless. There's nothing out there. Weeds that thrive on neglect plague-infected prairie dogs, irradiated grasshoppers with too many legs, or too few. Further afield than anyone other than resource management officials would want to go, we've heard there are still pockets of outsiders, people who didn't want to live in the controlled environments, and who probably opposed NACE. The land has reverted to indigenous rule, so presumably they've worked out agreements with their new governments, as we have. They're not the people we've been told to worry about, anyway. Oren's Aunt Rebecca used to leave. She was a naturalist who had helped design the sphere's ecosystem. Even so, she left it, regularly, and right up until the end. I never met her. She died before Oren and I were introduced. She liked to get out. That's what Oren said she called it. But while he followed in her footsteps, he's a botanist. He didn't follow them all the way out there. She'd apparently leave for days at a time, even when she was in her seventies, foraging for crabapples and currants and bringing it all back. She'd make jams and jellies with her saved-up allotments of sugar and citrus, like someone out of the old books I liked to read, the ones about campsites, not lovers, generally speaking. It was her sleeping bag and particulate respirator I'd taken with me, I might not have met Rebecca, but I felt I knew her. I'd seen her sketches, heard so many stories about her from Oren, and i tasted her preserves. Wiggly crabapple jelly, dry like a white wine, tangy cherry jam, or silky tart apple butter made with whole apples, even the cores and skins. Oren's favorite was wild plum jelly, majestically purple and puckery along with the sweet. Orrin told me about his aunt's preserves long before he let me try any. When at last he cracked open a jar, late one night when we needed a snack, I knew he was getting serious about me. About us. All he said was, I want to share something special with you. And while we are taught from a young age in our NACE-mandated social responsibility and conflict resolution classes never to read into the words of another... I heard something I believed was subtext. The restless part of me tensed and bristled at the idea. Some wild things can live in a cage, it's true, but it changes them. The foxes and wolves and hawks we'd brought inside the sphere lived happy lives, but they were different than the ones we'd rescued. But different isn't always bad. The sphere is enormous with multiple biomes, meticulously designed to be as unobtrusive and comfortable as possible for its inhabitants. That night, as I looked at Oren standing there in his kitchen, offering me a spoonful of this impossibly precious jam, he was smiling so hopefully. He was so open, so vulnerable. He hadn't even put on boxers. And I realized he... this... might be big enough for me to feel comfortable inside, too. I'd always found people hard. But life with Oren was actually easier. I went from not knowing what I wanted from our relationship to wanting to not ever mess up with him. That's why I can't explain what happened the day I dropped the last jar of wild plum jelly. I was paying attention, but still it slipped from my fingers. I grabbed for it. So did he... But Eddie was twining himself around our feet and we both missed, not wanting to step on the cat. The jar was one of the supposedly unbreakable kinds. Tempered glass. The lids they re-engineered to last longer. The kind the trade authority insists we use for preserving of our vegetable and fruit crops. Even so, it broke. No, it shattered. "'sending glass and plum goo spilling out across the cornelian floor of our kitchen. "'Orin had, at times, suggested I was a distractible individual, "'as he put it when he was being kind. <laughs> "'Just completely out to lunch sometimes "'is what he called it when he was feeling less patient. "'He wasn't wrong. "'I did tend to have my nose in a book. "'My touch tablet was another source of frustration. "'I'd be on it during a conversation,' "'looking at whatever, work stuff, a documentary, a game. "'Even so, I worked at the art museum. "'I was always careful with irreplaceable things. "'And Oren knew. "'At least I think he knew. "'I hope he knew. "'He said he knew. "'I was being careful. "'I had been totally focused on that stupid jelly, "'which we'd planned to eat on some scones I'd picked up "'with credits at the nice specialty bakery "'to celebrate Oren's promotion at work.' Looking at the mess, he made a small sound I can't describe. I immediately said, I'm so sorry, as we were taught in conflict management class. I tried to remember the right way to say it all. That was my fault. I apologize. I was careless with something of yours and... It's okay, he said, interrupting me. You weren't being careless. Accidents happen. And he smiled. His smile is what broke me. He'd lost something precious, but he was comforting me. He put his long arms around me, but for the first time it felt like a prison. I struggled against his embrace, but he didn't let me go, and eventually I submitted. When I did, he held me tighter. Never mind, he whispered. Let's clean it up and celebrate. My pieced lips finally moved. I croaked. I just know how much it meant to you. How much she meant to you is what I couldn't say. It's okay. It can't be helped. I don't think he intended his words to devastate me, but there was just so much contained in that short sentence, more than those NACE classes would want me to believe. I knew Oren had an obligation to communicate everything he wanted me to know. And it was my responsibility to listen to Orin's words... And the words alone. It can't be helped. That was true. But I heard the grief. Not really for the jelly... But for the connection to his aunt. And more than that... the nostalgia for a world gone. For the waste. The biggest sin of our society. We cleaned up the mess... ...carefully rinsing the glass for recycling. The jelly goo went into the compost disposal. We opened another jar of something for the scones... ...and then we went to bed. There, we fucked for a long time... ...each putting in the effort to give the other what they liked most. But that evening, every orgasm felt like an apology. I rose with the sun rather than woke with it, having spent the night tossing and turning on the rocky ground. My mouth tasted ashy and bitter. I rinsed it with a very little bit of the water I'd brought with me. I also ate some of the dried fruit and meat I'd brought, saved for months for my own allotment, never orins. Then I put my respirator back on, even though my face was sore from sleeping in it. I missed my bed. I missed my bidet. I missed Orrin, who I'm sure had found my note saying I'd gone to stay with my friend Liesel for a few nights, to clear my head. At least my slug seemed as happy as always in its little ball. I never tired of watching the delicate antenna-like protuberances over its pert head or its undulating body covered with soft, trembling gills. It wasn't a pet, "'but I was attached to it. "'Usually I pitied it. "'But that morning I envied it. "'It was my first time away from the sensible comforts "'of the sphere for over three decades. "'And I was already ready to go back, "'not so restless after all. "'I pushed the thought aside. "'I had a mission to complete. "'We were going to make some wild plum jelly, "'Orin and I, from his aunt's recipe. Had read it over.' It wasn't hard. All we needed were the plums. Orin had said a few times he didn't think they were really extinct. So, after doing a lot of reading on the subject, I decided to try to find them. Orin had said it can't be helped, but maybe it could be, at least sort of. There were more unlikely things in the world than a wild thriving species recovering after being aggressively left alone for a long time. I was sore after my long ride the day before, especially in a hard to find underneath part of my body where the saddle pressed. I rode my bike every day, but not for hours and hours. I thought once I got going my soreness would go away, but it didn't. Back on the heat-blistered road, the discomfort and exhaustion made me clumsy. I was distracted. Or perhaps just completely out to lunch. But even if I'd been paying close attention, like I had been with the plum jelly, the truth was, I simply hadn't been on the lookout for traps. I awoke disoriented and in a different sort of pain. I wasn't sore. I was in agony. A word I knew from those old books again. Agony was simply not what people felt anymore. Not in the sphere. But I was no longer in the sphere. And I was in agony. And I was pretty sure I was bleeding from the head. When I tried to touch the wound, I realized I was also restrained. I couldn't immediately remember what had happened. I had ridden all day, heading toward what had been the South Platte River, which was where Orin had said his aunt had foraged. I had seen something green trees maybe and picked up the pace excited by the sight after so much dreariness but then i had hit something something i couldn't see and gone tumbling when i'd realized i was going over i grabbed for my slug and my touch tablet curling myself around them to protect them and then as my mind surfaced i became aware of a sound When I focused on it, I perceived it was actually two sounds. Rushing water and a woman singing a song with words I couldn't quite understand. Trying to make sense of it brought me back to the situation at hand. I peeled open my gritty eyes and saw a woman in the light from my slug, which she was holding aloft. She was wearing my respirator, but I still recognized her. I'd seen her standing over me after my wreck, grinning without a lot of teeth. She had a lot of dirty brown hair, was thin to the point of seeming malnourished, and she was singing while weaving back and forth, doing a dance in her own spotlight. It was nighttime, and I was lying on a soft, damp riverbank, not far from the churning water. There was a sweet smell to the air, "'sweeter than anything I'd smelled since leaving the sphere. "'Fresh water, greenery, and there was something else, too. "'The woman danced before a grim black cave in the river bank. "'It had a forlorn, eroded look to it, "'but the entrance had been kept open by a stand of wild plum trees, "'their roots half-exposed. "'Even so, they were absolutely thick with plums.' And so many had already fallen, turning purple and rotten in the mud. i burst out laughing. I'd found those plums all right. At the sound of my insane cackling, the woman paused in her undulations and looked at me. You're awake. She had a strange-to-me accent. I said nothing. You're from there, aren't you? She paused, and then brandished my slug at me. That's why you have this. You're from there. I nodded. She could only mean the sphere. I am. I came looking for. for. I froze. Should I tell her? Would that be a mistake? I couldn't deal with the enforced honesty of the sphere. So how could I be expected to know how to deal with this feral person? But as I was not feral, and life in the sphere had taught me that the truth was always best, I said, I came looking for wild plums, to give them to someone I love. I couldn't believe what I'd said after my mouth stopped moving. I'd never been able to say it to Oren, even though it was true. But I'd just gone and told this complete stranger plums she was scoffing at me long have i waited for this day she said i will be rewarded by a god for what i have done but you for what you have done will be devoured i saw it wasn't only wild plums scattered about the entrance of the cave there were bones too A human skull gleamed blue-white in my poor slug's light. But what have I done? I had no idea if I could reason with her, but I had to try. What have you done? You stole their young woman when their ship hit, trusting the older ones would die out. But they haven't. They are here. I serve one, and once I give it back its child, I will be rewarded by eternal life in the paradise where they have ever reigned. I do not know if what she said was true, and I believe I will die before I have a chance to find out. My fall from my bike did something to my leg. I've been able to walk on it, but not quickly, and I am out of water. And I am not sure where I am. I escaped. But I have not been able to find the road back to Sphere 2. So I have chosen to write out everything that happened. To explain what happened to whoever finds me. Whenever that might be. It will soon be too late. And too late is too late. Whether it's five minutes or five centuries but if it is somewhat closer to five minutes than five centuries, and if Orrin sees us, I want him to know I didn't leave him, only that I left. I always intended to come back. He must have sensed something was afoot, because the night before my planned departure, he said, Are you leaving me? I'd been distant. I knew it. The idea of the journey scared me, but it was something I felt I had to do. Those conflict management courses had been right. The imbalance was creating tension. I had to repair what I damaged. But how could I when I destroyed something irreplaceable? I'm not leaving you, I'd said, telling myself I wasn't lying if I meant it as he meant it but knowing I was lying just the same. A sin almost as bad as waste. He'd looked so happy I almost hadn't gone. But in the end, I needed to show him how seriously I took what I'd done. How seriously I took him. How much I cared about fixing what I'd broken so that it could keep going, so that it could last, so that if it didn't last, I wouldn't be remembered as the one who broke your aunt's last jar. But it's something more than that. Something closer to you. Something closer to who I wanted to be for you. But now that I can't get back to you, Oren, I fear you'll only remember me as a liar. What eventually emerged from the cave looked exactly like my slug, and nothing like it at all. It was enormous. Bigger than an ox. It did have the same shape as my slug. A dragonish face, a body like an aquatic pine cone, all fins and layers. But instead of emitting bright, beautiful light, it seemed to suck light into itself. I could barely see it. It was so dark, blacker than the night. I remember looking at it and thinking I'd been a fool to think I was missing something, when I'd never before this moment actually understood emptiness. "'The god itself!' cried the woman, snatching up my slug. "'She ran up to the creature and prostrated herself before it, "'its tiny inverse presented like an offering. "'The creature made a sound that was not a sound, "'but like the stealing away of it. "'I wished I could cover my ears, but my wrists were still tied.' I wanted to grab my slug and get out of there. I wanted to run and abandon it. I wanted a lot of things I couldn't have. I have returned your child unto you, O far-flung one, said the woman. I am ready for your promised reward of eternal life in your celestial court. I have. I never found out what else she'd done. The creature lunged at her and my slug went spinning away in its sphere, landing close to the river with a sharp rap that made me cry out. The slug's glass was the same type as those jars, supposedly unbreakable, but I knew better, and I didn't like how the poor thing's light had dimmed on impact. Cracked or not, the sphere was in danger of being swept away by the river. I started inching toward it, wriggling my way like a worm, as I did, I saw the creature fall upon my captor. She screamed and I looked away, and I heard a crunch. When I got to my slug, I nudged it away from the water with my chin. As I did so, in its light I spied a rock that looked sharp. Wiggling around, I grabbed it and managed to saw through my bonds, wrist then ankle. When I was finally free, I turned to my slug, picking up the spear to inspect it. It didn't look well. It was much dimmer than usual, and though it had never possessed much effect, it seemed listless. There was nothing I could do for it, so I held it tightly to my chest and cried for a long time, for a lot of reasons. At some point I realized the other slug, the black one, had joined me. It had finished its grim feast and seemed anxious about the little one in my arms. I presented it to the big one, unsure if I was terrified or hopeful, but all it did was touch its nose to the glass, and the little one's light strengthened again. I said thank you, because I didn't know what else to do, as it slunk away into the darkness of its cave, leaving me alone, but alive, without any idea if it had understood me or not. There was nothing left for me to do but to gather up some wild plums in the tatters of my jacket and guess at which way to limp. I tried to remember anything I'd read about celestial navigation, but the stars were of no help to me. I didn't even know if I needed to keep the mountains to my left or to my right. The place that woman had taken me might have been the South Platte River or the St. Bran Creek, or it might not have been... I will probably never know. Even were my leg in better shape, I could not buy my bike, and Rebecca's respirator broke during all the chaos by the riverside. At least I have it all written down now, and if I die, I do not die alone, for I'm with my dear slug, shining bright as ever, keeping me company as it keeps my touch-tablet charged." But what really comforts me is knowing I'll be found. I am certain of it. It's impossible to work in a museum or to love books and not trust that fragile things can survive. I'll be found. And they will find a touch tablet with a message, more than I've ever been able to say, recorded for someone whom I hope will receive it and forgive me.
3: And there you go. Oh, ho, Molly, thank you so much. Molly, that was fantastic, man. Oh, yes. And Mary, 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 Mary. Oh, quality, lass. Quality, thank you so much indeed. That was just amazing. Um, chuffed a bit, chuffed a bit. Thank you indeed. So that is today's show. Hope You know, put to bed. What do you think? you you think? <laughs> is, is I'm getting out my tin cup. That's what I'm doing, rattling it, you know what I mean? Help me keep going and putting out stories and narrations like that. That's just fantastic. Support on Patreon, monthly donations or, like, a one-off donation through kind of PayPal. It's on the front website. We need it. It would be fantastic. It would be such a great help. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for this
2: can you reach me Is my signal getting through turn on your radio i want to talk to you this signal's going light speed by the time i get my say i'm out Cast myself on the radio wave, I might get tears someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there, I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there.